Father God, we want to just thank you again for this morning, for an opportunity to see what's happening in the world around us, that we know we gather in this space to encourage each other, to hear from you, uh, to have you meet us. Um, but we also know that uh, the, the outpouring of that is the, the impact we make on the world around us, whether it's to people who know you or don't. Uh, we want to share the good news of who you are, uh, and we do that by being your hands and feet. Uh, so continue to, to inspire us and motivate us and get us, give us wisdom on how to do that well. Now as we approach your word, as we look at uh, your scripture, we pray that your spirit be here amongst us and speak to us through it so we can hear your voice this morning. Amen. So as many of you probably know, uh, we, for the year of 2022, we've been slowly working our way through Matthew. Uh, and last week, we began uh, what's known as Passion Week, the, the final week of Jesus' life. The first 20 chapters of Matthew cover about three years of Jesus' life, whereas the final 10 only cover a week, one single week. Uh, and so last week, we were talking about uh, what's been known as the, the triumphal entry, the moment in which Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, and we, we, we showed how there was a number of different things going on in that story. Uh, that it was Jesus, Jesus is riding into the city because it's Passover, uh, and, he, uh, and during Passover, you have Jews from all over the nation of Israel who come to Israel for this celebration. Now, we also talked about that because there are that many Jewish people in the same space around this national holiday, Rome gets a little nervous. So we, talked, we showed last week how there were two different ways to enter the city. And Pilate, the governor of, of Rome in the area at that time, marched in one way on horses with armor and a big giant fanfare to show Rome is powerful and this is the way of the world, whereas Jesus comes in the other side of the city on a donkey. We showed how, that, how, how the, those two ways are directly contrasted with each other, that you have the way of Rome and you have the way of Jesus and they're different. This week, we're going to continue with what happens right after that. So Jesus has just entered into the city, and then he goes directly to the temple, and we're going to look at that story today. Um, now, in the story we're going to look at, I, I think, is an interesting one, because one, it's one that, whether you are real familiar with the Bible or not, it's one that you might have heard of before. Uh, it's one that gets told often. Uh, but it's also one that I think is relatively confusing, and we'll take a look at that. And, and I know it's been a passage that's been misapplied in a number of different areas in a number of different ways. So hopefully we can gain a better understanding of it. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm actually going to read through the entire passage we're going to look at today. And we're really talking about two different stories. Uh, then we're going to slow down and back up and see if we can understand them a little better. But we're in Matthew 21.12 this morning. So if you've got a Bible and want to follow along, that's what we'll be Matthew 21, 12, which says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it into a den of robbers. Then the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you not read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. 
When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the tree, how did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can, can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So like we said, we have two stories here, both of them a little strange, both requiring some explanation. So let's see if we can understand what's going on here. Let's start with the first story. Let's start with the temple story. Um, Like I said, it's probably a story you've heard before. It's a story that we tell often. Jesus goes to the temple. He sees what's happening there. He gets really mad, and he starts flipping some tables, which, you know, if if the sermon doesn't go well, I might do that to the pizza table afterwards just to see if I can feel better about it. Uh, but what do we do with that, right? It's, it's kind of a strange experience. It seems, it actually, if you've been re- as we've been reading through Matthew, it seems like it's a little out of character for Jesus, isn't it? That what, why, and he's run into a number of things throughout the last three years of his ministry that would be really frustrating and infuriating as well, and he never goes off in this kind of way. Uh, we don't, it's, it seems to be one of the most violent things that he does in his ministry, was flipping these tables. And so what do we do with that? And then then the second story is just as weird, right? He's walking by uh, a fig tree and sees that it has no no figs on it, so he curses it. Uh, What do we do with both of those? Well, as we'll see at the end, these two stories are related to each other. Uh, But we need to understand the first in order to understand the second. So let's start with the temple. Now, last week, we talked about some parallels between the way that Jesus enters the city and the way that someone named Judas Maccabee enters the city, right? The Judas the Hammer Maccabee, the, the leader of the Maccabean Revolt in which the Jewish people overthrow the Greeks who are in, their, in, their, um, in the nation of Israel uh, and retake the, the country for themselves. We saw last week that when Judas Maccabee rides into the city to take Jerusalem again, the first place that he goes is to the temple to cleanse it. To, uh, to, to, to relight the menorahs, to, to get rid of all of the horrible things that uh, the, the Greeks had put into it. Um, it's where Hanukkah comes from, right? That's, that was this, this first initial purification of the temple. Uh, we, we showed how Jesus enters the city in a similar way last week, and, the, and he, that continues this week as the first place that Jesus goes is to the temple as well. Now, what the Bible tells us is when Jesus goes to the temple, what he sees there are people exchanging money and selling animals. So the first question is, what is that all about? What's happening here? Well, in this particular time, if you were an Israelite, once a year you'd have to come and offer a sacrifice at the temple. Um, And and so many people had to travel travel long distances to do that. Now, the rules for sacrifice were that if you were going to offer up an animal for sacrifice, it needed to be perfect. And, or without blemish is what, the, is what the scripture says. Whatever animal you're going to offer better not be tainted in some way. Which created a problem for a number of people. Let's imagine you live in the region of Galilee up north. Uh, one, you, if, you're, if you're poorer, it's difficult to make sure that all your animals stay without blemish in the first place, right? Because animals can be a little unpredictable. Uh, they, could, they can get hurt. They, there's a number of different things that could happen. Um, while you're just raising them in that particular region. And so that is a problem in and of itself. But let's say even, even if you can keep your animals perfectly blemish-free, and then you begin your journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem, which is a difficult and long walk, because you don't have uh, cars or transportation in that way, what happens if on the way your perfectly blemish-free animal is injured on the journey? 
Then what do you do? Do you turn around to go back? Well, you're going to miss Passover then. You're going to miss the celebration then. You're not going to be able to do the thing you need to do. And so it created this problem for people. Well, the solution was then that in Jerusalem itself, they would raise blemish-free animals to be purchased and then sacrificed uh, to fulfill that requirement. Um, now, that system, that system in and of itself, there was nothing wrong with that. It was a system that actually was really beneficial to many people. Uh, it actually began uh, outside of the temple courts um, in, a, uh, in a place that we now know as Robinson, Robinson's Arch. Actually, I have a few pictures of that because I got to see that this past uh, year when I was in Israel. If you want to throw those up, Reese, it's the one with the... Well, if you can throw up the temple first, that would be helpful, the, the yellow temple. So here's, the, here's a picture of kind of to to kind of um, orient us around the temple here. You have the, a big wall on the outside. Then you have a temple courtyard, otherwise known as the Gentile court. Uh, Gentiles and people who were sick or lame in some way could be in that out, outer Gentile court. Uh, then you had a court of, of women, which is if you're an Israelite and a woman, you can go there. Uh, and then there's an inner court, a court of Israel. In order to get into that one, you have to both be Israelite and a male. So you, could, so you kind of have these different layers. On the outside, if you can go to the next slide, Reese. Uh, here's another picture of it. If you kind of wanted to picture it as an artist rendition, uh, you can kind of see what it would look like. Can we go to the next one, Reese? It's just another one. I don't know why I had two. Anyway, keep going. Next one, Reese. Sorry. Finally, on the outside, you can, see this, you can see the temple walls here. And where it's circled down there in the bottom is a place known as Robinson's Arch. Um, it actually... Uh, it's an amazing structure, actually, because it's one of the biggest raised walkways that's ever been found in the ancient world. Um, as we're in Israel, time and time again, and we'll actually have another example of that today, you realize how good of a builder Herod the Great actually was? Um, he did things that no one else could do. This is one of those. So this structure, that's what it would have looked like in its heyday, an absolutely beautiful and massive structure that would take you down from below the temple walls up <clears throat> onto the Temple Mount platform. Now, the reason we're focused on that is actually, if you go to the next slide, Reese, this is what it looks like today. So when I was there, that's what it looks like. You can see the foundation of it that would have brought you up there. Unfortunately, it's in ruins now. Uh, but if you go to the one more slide, Reese, underneath that arch were these little booths, right? So you couldn't see it in that first picture of the artist's rendition because it was enclosed. But in these particular spaces is where that market we were just talking about with the buying and selling of animals would have been. So uh, you could come into this region before you go up into the Gentile court. You could buy your animals there, outside of the temple walls, go up the arch, and bring them to, to the sacrifice at the top of the Temple Mount. Um, that, that system was actually incredibly helpful for Jewish people who wanted to honor God in that way. It's not what Jesus is angry about. He's not angry because there are people who are buying and selling <clears throat> animals for sacrifice. The other part of it is there was also a section in this particular space where you could exchange your money. So if you were going to purchase one of these sacrificial animals, uh, in order to honor God, they didn't want you to do that using Roman currency. Um, the reason for that is that Roman currency was more than just a coin. If you were here for our Revelation series, you remember um, that a Roman coin uh, actually is similar to a newspaper. So your, your Roman governors or your Roman emperors would mint coins with messages on them, um, declaring their one, most of the time, divinity, that Roman emperors believed they were divine, and some of the great and powerful things they had done. 
Now, the Jewish religious structure believe we don't want to buy the animals we're going to sacrifice to Yahweh God with, with money declaring someone else is God. That was a problem for them, and you can understand why. And so, actually, Reese, if you want to throw up a coin, this, is, this would be a typical Roman coin. So you could, that's from Caesar Augustus right there. You can also see on the left it says Augustus divine, right? So you've got both of those two things kind of happening in this particular space. Uh, and they didn't want to use those particular coins. So they set up a system in which you could exchange these coins for these ones, temple coins. And you see on here we have a picture of a palm branch. We, have some, we actually have a number of different um, items on those coins, and those would be your temple coins. So you could exchange your Roman currency so you weren't purchasing your sacrificial animals with Roman currency, and you could use temple currency instead. Those booths also would have been underneath Robinson's Arch there. The whole market would have taken place right there. The structure itself was set up to actually try to keep the temple holy, and that's also the money exchanging is not what Jesus is upset about. The fact that they, were, they had set up this system to try to remain pure in that temple structure, that's not what he's mad about. There isn't inher anything inherently wrong with either of those systems um, outside the temple gates in that particular space. But when we look at our story, we, 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 we're, we're told that we're not actually in Robinson's Arch area. We look at it again. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. Reese, if you want to throw up this, that orange picture again of the temple, we're not outside the temple wall here in the Robinson's Arch area where there would have been a market. Where are we instead? We're inside of that Gentile court, right? We're inside of the temple walls. We're up on the temple mount. So now the, the, those, those money changers and those, uh, the people who are buying and selling animals have moved from outside of the temple walls into that different space which is a huge deal because like we said, the system that they had set up was meant to honor the purity of the temple. No blemished animals, no images of Caesar. It was, supposed to be a, a, it was supposed to help people remain pure as they come to approach God. But, we're not do, but, we're, but, in the, but the fact that we've moved the market up into this space means we're not concerned about that anymore, are we? We've shifted to a different kind of priority. The systems become corrupt. Just the fact that they were in that particular location we know uh, the system had become corrupt. What was supposed to take place in the market outside of the temple walls was now hijacking the Gentile court of the temple. Now we also know from history and other places in Scripture that something else had taken place. What was meant to be a place to help people honor God better had shifted into an exploitative structure. We, we, we know from, from different places in Scripture itself that there was a tax for exchanging your money. So there'd be a charge now, a temple tax, that would go into exchanging your money. We also know there was another tax for the, per, for the animal that you purchased. So every time you had to buy anything, there was a double tax that would have been applied to that particular transaction. And we know as well that tax was exploitative. Uh, around the temple in Jerusalem, we've done a number of excavations and found the houses of Pharisees and Sadducees who would have worked in that particular space. Now, that is, that, them having a house is not a big deal, but what we found inside of those houses was we found incredibly expensive mosaic floors. Now, normal people in this particular day and age did not have mosaic floors. Only the richest and most elite people did. We found, we found bottles of wine that would have been years' salary for a normal person inside of these particular homes. 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees who worked in this particular temple structure were very clearly exceedingly rich. So for a system that was supposed to be a support for the people, it had become something that became a burden to them. So the system's corrupt, and we're not surprised by that this far into Matthew, right? We've seen that in a number of different places as we work through Matthew. But why does this particular corruption tick Jesus off in the way that it does? In order to understand that, we need to understand what the temple represents. See, in 2022, it's easy for us to think of the temple like a church, right? We have a whole bunch of churches around us, and we think of the temple in that way, a place you go to worship. Uh, But that's not the best way to think about the temple. Yes, the temple was a place you went to go worship, but a synagogue was more similar to a church than the temple was. Synagogues were your local places of worship you would go weekly. The temple, though, was something different. Uh, The temple itself, first of all, was something that was instituted by God. It starts actually in the wilderness while Israel is wandering around. They called it the tabernacle there. But God actually tells them exactly how he wants them to lay it out and says that's the place where he will meet with them. And actually throughout the Old Testament, God in a physical and supernatural kind of way meets Israel inside of both the tabernacle and then eventually Solomon's temple in the, um, in the time of the Israelite uh, dynasty. It's a place where God's presence actually fills in a tangible and meaningful way. So we see that throughout the Old Testament, plus just your general understandings of what temples were in the ancient world, is that temples were your, the physical house of your God. So we, 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 we in the modern world say, yeah, we meet God at church, but God meets all people in all churches. He's everywhere. In the ancient world, though, the, the temple you built, whether it was to Yahweh God or Zeus or whomever, Uh, was the physical home and presence of the God you were going to worship. You go to the temple of Artemis, that's Artemis' house. You go to the temple in Jerusalem, that's Yahweh's house in people's minds, in particular in Gentiles' minds. It was more more ingrained in that particular space. So that temple then, not only was a place you would go to meet God, it also represents God to the world. The way that that temple is run is how you understand who that particular God is. So then, when we start to understand that that's what the temple represents, this is a place where you can go meet and see who God is, we begin to understand why this particular instance set Jesus off in the way that it did. Because what we have is we have a system that has now moved from outside of the temple walls inside to the Gentile court. The court in which, again, if you were lame or blind, you could, and I guess there's actually a dispute, sometimes. If you were lame and blind, they would allow you into the Gentile court. Sometimes they actually excluded you from the temple altogether. Uh, or if you're a Gentile, you would go into this Gentile court, obviously. So it's a, it's a court built for the most marginalized in the religious system. And, the, and, and, and now, instead of having this system that was supposed to operate outside the walls, it's actually overtaken the court built for the most marginalized. people who, and, and not only that, but it also begins to exploit those same people. See, the temple, represent, the temple is supposed to represent God, and this is how they were representing him to the rest of the world. Instead of the place that draws people near to him, it's a place of exploitation and exclusion. Now, it's interesting. If you're ever interested in studying the anger of God, 
or the, uh, which I realize is a hard thing for many of us to wrestle with. I'd encourage you to look through the Bible and see how many times God's anger is associated with the least of these or the most marginalized people being exploited. What you'll find very, very quickly is that the vast majority of times in which we see God's anger on display is when marginalized people are exploited by those who have more power. We see it in this story clearly. We see it throughout the New Testament and many places in the Old. As Jesus walks into the temple and sees the court that was designed for the most marginalized being used to exploit them instead, he can't tolerate, tolerate that. He can't tolerate God being portrayed as exploitative. His place being used to take advantage of those who are already marginalized. If you think about it, the only story in the New Testament of Jesus getting this angry, it's because the church, or the temple in this case, cared more about making a profit and getting bigger than it did about the people it was serving. We see in this story that Jesus has a heart for, the, for those who the rest of the world has rejected. And I think that's something that we, as the modern church, need to realize as well. That what the, the primary call of our mission is for those who are marginalized or for the, or those for the rest of the world to said, not for them. We saw it on display this morning already around Mission Sunday where the, for the churches planted in places where there aren't or for, stu- for kids who can't eat on the weekends. So Jesus gets really angry. He turns over tables, which obviously is making a statement. Actually, I think... For me, that would just be fun to do once, right? Somebody fill up a table filled with coins and just fling it and watch them fly everywhere. I feel like that would be really cathartic. But, but he does that, which obviously is going to make a big point. Uh, but there's something else in this story that can get people tripped up as well. It doesn't say it in Matthew, but in John we get a detail that can be tricky. So in John it said, He made a whip out of cords and drove from all the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those he sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. By the way, doves, um, it's mentioned that in both of them. Doves were, um, so in the sacrificial system, if you didn't have enough money to buy a lamb or something more expensive, um, doves were your choice, right? For the poorest people who needed to offer sacrifice, doves were the ones to do that. So again, it's this reinforcing of he's angry with the people who are taking advantage of the, the least of these. Um, he said, stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house, he will, will consume me. So, so often we, when we think of this story, we think of Jesus being angry in this way and we think of him making a whip and then like actually whipping people out of the, out of the, um, out of the temple, which seems a little violent. I know some people can struggle with that. Um, but the reason I think we, a, lot of, a lot of us struggle with that is because when we think whip, we think this. Right? Who didn't think that when you think of whip, right? I mean, Indiana Jones, right? Like, if you're going to talk about somebody who can wield a whip, it's that guy. And so when you think of a whip, you think of a bull whip. Now, I would really highly encourage you to not think of a bull whip when we're talking about this kind of whip, right? One, uh, Jesus isn't just carrying a whip around with him like Indiana Jones, right? That's not a thing he would have done. Um, two, to make one of those quickly is really hard, right? You don't just make a bull whip. Um, when you're like, he fashioned one out of cords, you, no, you don't make that. Uh, Jesus most, very most likely did, most scholars agree, uh, what he made a whip out of is this. Instead. That. So that is a Jewish prayer shawl. 
almost certainly Jesus would have been wearing, wearing one when he went into the temple. And as you notice, there are cords hanging down off of it, right? Uh, it is much more likely when he makes a whip out of cords. It's not a bull whip. Uh, it's, it's rolling that prayer shawl up and using that like a whip. So much less like Indiana Jones, more like snapping somebody with a towel in a locker room. Right? We've all done that, right? So that's, that's what Jesus is doing. He's, 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 so it's not, he's not, he's, I mean, I don't, if, he, if you can, sometimes you can get a real good whip with a towel and it does sting a little bit. But he's not like whipping people like a bullwhip. So that just, anyway, you can get that out of your mind. So let's, let's close this part of the story, though. Jesus enters the city, contrasted to Pilate. Pilate comes in with a big, mighty, powerful force. He goes to the temple first, just like Judas Maccabee, and clears it of the exploitation that was happening there. Now, it's interesting in this story, because after he clears it, who does Matthew tell us comes in? It says, The blind and the lame came, at, came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So just to reinforce the point that we've been making, as soon as Jesus fears, finishes clearing the temple, who comes in? It's the blind and the lame, it's the, which means they weren't there in the first place, which means they were being excluded all the way out. It's the children, it's all of those same people um, who, who had been keep, kept out in the first place. The Pharisees actually see this, that Jesus is inviting all of these marginalized people to come in to meet him. He's healing them. He's doing all of these different things. And I love actually the way that Matthew writes it because he says, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he was doing, Matthew is making sure to drive that point home. He says the, the religious folks see it and they're furious. The people that are supposed to be running the temple See Jesus do what Matthew calls these wonderful things, and they're angry. In their minds, these people shouldn't be here. They're unclean. They're not good enough. Whatever you want to say, they say those people aren't welcome in this space and so are indignant. Hold on to that thought. Is that that's gonna, we're going to need that to understand the next part of the story. So quick reset. Jesus entered the city, contrast to Pilate. He's gone to the temple. He's cleared it from the exploitation, invited back in the marginalized. The religious leaders see it and they're furious. Those people shouldn't be here, fundamentally missing what Jesus is doing and what the temple is meant to be. And so then we move to the story about the tree. In the scriptures, it says, Jesus says, it says that Jesus leaves the temple. He leaves Jerusalem altogether and goes to Bethany. Now, Reese, can you throw up the, the map here? So this is the journey he would have taken. So from the Temple Mount, you go to the Mount of Olives, you go through a place called Bethpage to Bethany. So it says that Jesus walked this walk, stays the night in Bethany, and on the way back, uh, finds a, sees a fig tree. Now it's very likely that on his way back, he would have been near Bethpage, right? Now in Hebrew, the, the city of Bethpage, the word Bethpage means city of the early fig, so that helps us in this story, right? So now we have, we have an understanding that we're in this region, uh, a, a region that grows figs earlier. They're known for their fig growing. So a couple of things. First, when Israel enters the promised land of the Old Testament, God promises them that it's going to be a fertile land, land flowing with milk and honey, right? Which I learned when I went to Israel. When we think of honey, don't we often think of bees, right? That's honey. That's not the honey God's talking about because there are barely any bees there, right? He's talking about 
date honey, which I didn't know before. Now I do. Now you do too. So that's good. Well, God says it's going to be a fertile land, and he says there's actually going to be seven species of plant that are going to kind of represent the, the uh, fertility and abundance of Israel. The seven plants are wheat, barley, dates, grapes, olives, pomegranates, and want to guess the last one? Figs, right? The seven, uh, the seven plants, seven crops uh, of Israel. Now, throughout time, those seven crops came to represent Israel's thriving. Now, actually, Reese, can you throw that coin up again that we have, the, the, the temple coin? On this particular coin, actually, if you were to look closely, all seven of those, um, of those uh, crops are represented on those coins there, which is interesting. So <clears throat> figs have a deeper representation than just this tree or just the fact that Jesus is, being hung- is hungry. The flourishing of fig trees actually represents the flourishing of Israel as a whole. And the meaning goes a little deeper as well because not only is there a fig tree, which is one of the seven uh, crops of Israel, we're also in Bethpage, which means the house of the early fig, like we said. So we're in a region known for their figs in a land that's supposed to produce figs, and this tree isn't. Fig trees' purpose in the world are to produce figs, and this one's not. And so what Jesus is saying is if you're not going to do the thing that you were created to do, you're going to lose your chance to. Make sense? I'm gonna, we'll come back to that in just a second because we still have the last passage to, part of the passage to deal with. So the disciples see the tree wither uh, and they're amazed. First, because it's a miracle. Uh, and second, because I'm not sure they're capturing the point that Jesus is making here. They say, how did it wither so quickly? Which isn't really the point that he's trying to make at all because he replies by saying, if you have faith in God, you will be able to do more, even more amazing things than that. He says, you can tell this mountain to throw itself into the sea and it will. Now, that statement is also carrying with it more weight than we realize at first. Remember where we are. We're on the road to Bethany heading southeast. And from this location, there wouldn't have been any confusion at all about what mountain Jesus is talking about. Uh, We've already talked about him once, and I said we'd talk about him again here. You probably have heard of a guy named Herod the Great. He was, the, he was earlier in Matthew, he's the one, um, the Magi visit, all of those particular things. Uh, he's, a, in, in the, in the, he's known as Herod the Great to secular um, historians because of his amazing ability to build things. In the eyes of Rome, Herod truly was phenomenally great. Uh, in the eyes of Israelites, though, he was horrible and cruel and despised by everyone in Israel. And so, with that in mind, now, by the time this particular story takes place, Herod is dead. He's not, he's been dead for a while. Um, But, there's a story, there's, he he left many remnants around the region, and and one of them in particular is the one that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, As Herod was in Jerusalem one year, he decided that he would like to have a palace outside of Jerusalem, a, a grand palace that would even, that would impress Caesar. He wanted to build a fortress on top of a mountain that would be uh, this, just this mark of strength and power and prowess in the particular region. As he was looking out around Jerusalem, though, he realized there weren't any good mountains for him to build on, ones that would hold this fortress in the way that he wanted. So rather, where in that particular case, where most people would do is either they would modify their idea of building a fortress on top of a mountain or throw in the towel altogether because there just isn't one. 
What Herod decided to do is he said, if there isn't a good mountain for me to build my fortress on, I'll just build a mountain. And he did. Reese, if you want to actually throw up the picture of the, this particular space. Uh, this is an artist's rendition of, of Herod's palace outside of Jerusalem known as the Herodian. Uh, he builds a mountain through slave labor, makes, builds the mountain, and on top builds one of the most magnificent fortresses uh, the world has ever seen. Uh, the Herodian is a, m another marvel of engineering. If, Reese, can you go to the next picture? This is a picture of a, art, a closer picture of the, the top fortress on that mountain uh, from the Herodian itself. So that's, that's at, the, at the location. Um, the structure itself is absolutely phenomenal. And, but then also, if you notice, it's hard to see, but there, see those little slits on the side there? Uh, those little slits are on the outside of a double wall uh, uh, going around that, the Herodian. But scholars believe that those slits were actually four. Uh, they believe it's the first use of air conditioning in the ancient world. The wind in this region would, would whip around in that area, would get caught by those little slots, and then spin around the inside of that double wall, right? Uh, cooling down everything in between. Again, Herod was a genius when it came to engineering. We've never seen anything like it in the ancient world. Well, Herod builds this massive structure on top of a mountain just outside of Jerusalem. At the end of his life, he actually, he uses the palace a few times. We actually don't know how many times, but it doesn't seem like very many. Uh, then apparently gets sick of it uh, and decides to bury it, like you do, right? Spend all that time and the money and energy and lives to build it. And he's like, I don't like it anymore. I'm going to bury it. Uh, and so he declares it to be his burial spot. He's going to be buried there, and he's going to bury the entire Herodian um, underneath the mountain that he already built, essentially making for himself a pyramid, right? Like the pyramids in Egypt, a burial spot that you can see from all over, um, a giant burial spot that looks like a cone, I guess, not a pyramid, but still, you get the idea. Um, actually, Reese, can you go to the next photo? That's a, this is a picture of what it looks like today. You can see a big amphitheater there. Um, the, obviously, the fortress on top has crumbled a bit, but also part of that is because it was buried, so there's more down to go, and we'll actually get to see more of it in the future, um, which would be really cool. It's actually surprisingly well-preserved, um, probably because it was buried. Reese, can you throw up the next one here? Here's a little closer look of the inside there. Just kind of an amazing thing. One more. This spot here. Um, for years and years and years, they were excavating the Herodian, and they couldn't find Herod's tomb. So he was supposed to be buried in the, in the, in, in the Herodian, uh, and they dug up all of the biggest parts of the fortress first and couldn't find his burial spot. And so... Uh, frustrated or thinking that the stories weren't true, they didn't know what else to do. Uh, until the, the lead archaeologist, who at this point had spent 20 years of his life excavating this site, somebody asked him, if you were Herod the Great, where would you put your tomb? He said, if I was Herod, I would draw a line directly from Israel to the Herodian, uh, overlooking a trade path that goes underneath, and I'd bury myself there with a monument so that everybody knew that even though I'm dead, I'm still watching over you. He said, that's, what I would, that's where I would build it. I said, well, I don't, why don't you dig there? And so they did. And that's what they found, which is Herod's tomb, where he, they found his bones, they found his, his space. He actually did that. He built, uh, he, he built on the edge of the Herodian a mausoleum to himself so that he could oversee the trade routes and Jerusalem even in his death. The guy was a megalomaniac. Uh, he needed, that's what he needed to do. The reason we tell that story, though, is because when Jesus says, you can say to that mountain, 
throw yourself into the sea, he almost certainly is talking about the Herodian. The mountain of, that, Herod, that Herod had set up as his tomb, as his pyramid, as a monument to show Israel, I am still watching over you and I am still more powerful than you are. Jesus is saying that mountain you can tell to throw itself into the sea and it will, which is making a drastically bigger point than just the power of faith, right? Now, it is making a point about power of faith. But he, what he's saying is that if, 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 you, if, if you follow me into this space, even people with the power of someone like Herod will be nothing compared to what you'll be able to do. So let's put all these pieces back together. Quickly, because I went long, sorry. So Jesus has come into Israel beginning his last week on earth. Before the crucifixion and resurrection, before the initiation of the new kingdom, he comes different than Pilate, different than the Maccabees. He goes to the temple to condemn the exploitation of the marginalized in the name of God. He then goes to a fig tree, one of the seven species of Israel in the region uh, known for its figs, to find it barren. He goes to the temple. The temple has already been found barren, not producing the fruit that it had been called to produce. Now Israel is being found barren barren in the calling they have been given from God. Jesus says to his disciples, there is an immense power in faith. Power to challenge the most powerful forces on earth. Power that makes Herod the Great and his mountains look like nothing. Power to take those systems and structures and make them on their own jump into the sea. But the point he's making throughout all of these stories is that with power comes responsibility. I like to call that the Spider-Man Clause of the Bible. Some of you get it. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom cannot look like the temple. That if Israel won't do what it's been called to do, their mission will be taken from them and it's like they're dead. Which we see affirmed and played out throughout the New Testament. Today's Mission Sunday. We've... We've been handed the mission that was given to Israel. What is once the temple is now the church. And what's the primary metaphor used for the church? It's that we're the body of Christ, right? We're called to, to, to do it to, with the best of our ability, represent God to the world. And I want you to let that sink in for just a minute. The reason that the Bible describes the church as the body of Christ is because we're called to represent God to the world. When they look at us, they're supposed to see a little bit of who God is, just like it was in the temple structure of the Old Testament. If you really let that sink in, you realize how big that charge is. Your actions, if you proclaim yourself to be Christian, are supposed to represent God to the world. And whether you like it or not, do represent God to the world. Don't believe me? If, if, you, if you ever had someone in your life who didn't believe in Jesus, when you talk about faith with them, how much of their problem, the problem they have with God is actually related to who God is and how much of their problem they have with God is related to somebody who proclaimed to be a Jesus follower doing something terrible? Which one's more powerful? My guess is the vast majority of people's rejections of who God is come because they've seen Christians behaving badly. 
They've walked into a temple that's supposed to care for the marginalized and said, instead seen, seen them be exploited. And they went, if God's like that, I want nothing to do with him. Which I don't blame them. This question this morning is then, does your life help someone see who Jesus is? When someone comes into your space, do they find someone who has, whose heart breaks for the marginalized just like Jesus does? They find a life marked by a different kind of worldview, not the kind that Pilate had or the temple has, but the kind that Jesus represents. Or do they instead find a magnificent temple, a wonder of the world even? Do they find a Herodian, but it's fruitless? See, friends, Jesus wasn't lying when he was describing the power of faith. See, following Jesus has the power to change the world that we live in. It is the power to take on Herod or social media or extreme political views. It is the power to bring love and healing to the marginalized. It is the power to do things greater than we can even imagine. Throughout my years of ministry, I've seen that over and over and over again, that when someone is actually met with the gospel, we saw it in the story we were, that was shared this morning. We've seen it in the lives of kids from hand to hand or the churches that have been planted, that when the power of the gospel comes, people can go from lives of destruction into this beautiful flourishing. The power is there as long as we realize what it's for. It's not for making Harbor Life great or America great or Israel great or Herod the Great great. It's not for make, for, not to make me great. That's fruitless. That's exploitative. The, po- the power Jesus is promise, promises for us is for making his kingdom great for changing the structures that we have to make it more inviting to those who the rest of the world has said, but not you. You and I have been given a charge that honestly, when I really let it sink in, I struggle to wrap my head and heart around. You and I in our imperfection have been charged to show the world what Jesus looks like. Not a small calling. We've been called to live the kind of lives that people see and are given hope because of. Again, not a small calling, not a small responsibility. It's huge, for me, incomprehensibly huge, but incredibly significant. Friends, if we don't do the work we're called to do, the metaphors we've seen in 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 the fig tree today are ours as well, that Jesus says, I'm going to get my mission done here on earth. I'd love to do it through you, partnering with you to be the body of Christ, but if you won't, if your life is fruitless, I'll hand it off to someone else. We've been called to hard work. But I want to close with one more thing. It's something we talked about in our men's ministry meeting on Thursday night. In that particular meeting, we closed with Psalm 1, which is an amazing psalm. And there's a line in Psalm 1 that says, I'm like a tree planted by the streams of living water. I want to show you two different pictures because this image the image, it fits into what we're talking about today and is an image that got new life from Israel this week. It's a lot of Israel pictures this week. Sorry about that. Or maybe not. Um, Reese, can you show up the first picture that looks like just barren wasteland? Not that one. Forget you just saw that one. That's going to wreck my point. <laughs> so this, this, this picture here uh, is, from, is from a place called Qumran. Maybe you've heard about it. It's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, it's right by the Dead Sea, obviously. And as you can tell, um, pretty much no greenery. Uh, I pretty much mean literally no greenery, right? 
This, this, this is the wilderness of Judea in the bottom. It is pure and lifeless desert. Qumran is, is there's almost nothing there at all. And most of the region around this particular space is like that. It's this barren desert wastelands, lifeless, fruitless, nothing. And then there's this little space only a few miles away from Qumran, which as you're driving up to continues to look like that. Just desert nothingness. And then there's a little crack in, in, the, in the mountains that are there. And, and, and in that crack, you start to begin to see trees. And as you drive into this little park, you start to see animals. And as you get deeper in, you start to see more trees. And eventually, by the time you get to the end of it, it looks like this. You see, this is a place called En Gedi. Can you go to the next slide too, Reese? An unbelievably beautiful space, a place called En Gedi, where there is a, a year-long stream that feeds that region, a stream of living water, if you will. The imagery that we have in, um, in, that, in Psalm 1 is that in the desert places of the world, if we plant ourselves next to streams of water, now they're harder to find, you've got to work to get to them, but when you do, when, you're, when your roots are in that spaces, you go from lifelessness to abundance of greenery and life. The reason I want to call, close with that particular psalm is that we've been given a mission to represent God to the world, which is not easy. It's going to require work. It's going to require us to find the streams of living water in the midst of the desert wasteland that we find ourselves in. But if we do, we move from a place like Qumran that's dead and lifeless. We move from a dead, fruitless fig tree to a place that's abundant and overflowing with life. That's our calling. It's a charge that was given to Israel and now has been given to the church. Will you accept it? Pray with me. Father God, we want to thank you for, for your love and care for, the, for those in the world who, the, who, who, who've been rejected, who've been marginalized, who've been treated as less than. God, if, there, if there's anyone in this space who feels like that kind of person today, my prayer is that your spirit show them the abundant love that you have for them, that your heart longs to be near them. God, I pray as well that you come to each of us to show us the mission that you've given us, that our hearts can break for the marginalized, the exploited, the hurting in this world, just as yours does, that we can embrace the mission that you've given us to use the power that's available to us through your spirit to do amazing things, to challenge the structures in the world like Herod's who will exploit life and resources to build a fortress that he uses only for a couple years and then becomes his tomb. That we can throw that into the sea and change the trajectory of where the world is going. God, may we be bold. May we accept the mission that we've been given. And may we change the world through your spirit. Amen.